I'd like to introduce um, our first speaker. Uh, it's Dr. Roy Milhouse, who is the department chair for the theology and ministry department. Dr. Milhouse, uh, besides having a PhD in biblical studies, um, also makes the rounds occasionally in preaching and is a very enjoyable preacher. Um, and likes to talk a lot of junk about our department chili cook-off, even though our second presenter, Dr. Tim Gabrielson, actually wins far more often. So um, with, with that, I can also say that he's my boss, and so now that I'm in trouble, I will yield the floor uh, to Dr. Milhouse's paper, The Return of Christ, Perusia, in 1 Thessalonians 4 through 5. I should be the winner of the chili cook-off. That's... I don't understand. <laughs> the per the uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't expect that, so now I'm, I'm dumbstruck. I don't know what to say. Uh, I'm just going to start reading. The parousia, or the appearing of Jesus Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, long recognized as essential in Paul's understanding of the return of Christ, has puzzled interpreters in, in its details. Issues such as the significance of the phrase through Jesus in verse 14 and what Paul means by, by a word of the Lord in verse 15 repeatedly appear in journals and essays and garner extended discussion in commentaries. The passage itself is one of encouragement made evident by Paul's conclusion in 4.18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. The same concept is echoed by the conclusion to the following section as well, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, as indeed you are doing. Yet how Paul sees his words of encouragement and uh, how Paul sees his words as encouragement and hopeful is challenging to decipher. In this paper, I investigate whether the Greco-Roman Adventists, the visit of an imperial or important dignitary to a city, can give us clues toward a better understanding of how Paul's word on Christ's return bring hope and comfort to believers who grieve the death of their fellow Christians. Paul begins 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 in a way that likely indicates he is responding to a concept the Thessalonian Christians find confusing. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. By the wording, those who died, the, NRV makes, the NRSV makes explicit the, the metaphor Paul uses here for death. And I should probably pause to point out here that uh, a smart person realizing that the plenary speaker for the, uh, for the conference would be one of the translators of the NIV, would probably use the NIV for their Bible translation choice. And I use the NRSV, so I'll just let you draw conclusions uh, based upon that. But anyway, uh, the metaphor that Paul uses here, he, he calls them in Greek, ukamumenu, uh, which is a mouthful, but there are a few of you in here that can say that, uh, the ones who sleep. Paul asserts that what he is about to tell them gives them hope as they grieve the loss of those sleepers, Christians who have died, described explicitly in 4.16 as the dead in Christ. The concept of hope is essential in the letter. It appears as part of the Christian triad of faith, love, and hope in the greeting of 1 Thessalonians 1.3, while the same trio serves as the armor of God in 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Paul asserts that he wants the Thessalonian Christians to know that they have hope while others do not. In, in uh, 4.14-16, Paul answers why Christian hope is different in the midst of grief by pointing to the parousia, or the appearing 
the return of Jesus Christ. Before we consider how this information gives hope where there is none, it will prove helpful to get a general idea of Roman attitudes toward death in an attempt to identify the hopelessness of the others. Roman attitudes toward death are as varied as ours are today. Many in the Roman world believed in an afterlife, though the specifics were often vague. Epitaphs express hope that the deceased person may be in Elysium, a place of reward, or they may be in the sky, or even among the gods. Rituals such as the Parentalia, an annual festival to memorialize the dead, suggested that some uh, saw a person's tomb as home after death. Epitaphs such as the familiar in the Roman world, may the earth lie lightly upon you, indicate that at the very least a figurative understanding for some sense of post-mortem existence was present. However, others believe that death was the end of existence. We see this often rendered succinctly in epitaphs along the lines of, I was not, I was, I am not, I don't care. Nevertheless, it is unclear how much the various views of death impacted how people lived. Valerie Hope comments, the living were expected to honor the dead, tend their graves, and remember. Some sort of belief in the continuity of death may have motivated the living, but this was probably entwined with other factors such as superstition, duty, tradition, and a desire to remember and respect the dead. The varying views on death led to an equally varied reaction to death's touch. There were rituals and legislation regarding mourning, often related to the age of, or status of the deceased. How or whether authorities would enforce such legislation is unclear, however. Further, there was a clear distinction between public grief and private grief. A public show of grief was the realm of women. Though Roman society expected this public mourning of elite women, expected the public mourning of elite women to be like that of men, under control and with dignity. Private grief, however, was real. Yet even here, the influence of Stoicism, at least on the elite, led to a view on death and mourning that concludes, life is short, the dead are better off than the living, time lessens sorrow, and grief accomplishes little. Yet the very fact that such reflections are offered as advice demonstrates the reality of grief. Contrary to the edicts of philosophers, parents openly mourn the loss of children, while the suicide of a spouse after being widowed was a romanticized ideal. Despair over a loss could be devastating. After her death, the widower of Claudia Pisti lamented, nothing is so miserable as to lose everything and to go on living a reflection common to any era of human existence. The variety of views on death and mourning, though, seem to have one thing that ties them together, a sense of uncertainty. This uncertainty appears to be what Paul is addressing in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when he asserts that he does not want the Thessalonian Christians to grieve, to mourn, as those who have no hope. For Paul, the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus speaks directly to this uncertainty, the resurrection of Jesus ensures the physical resurrection of his followers. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. Paul then tells them why the resurrection matters when it comes to, uh, to mourning with hope. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That's verses, uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 17. Because of the manner of Jesus' return, Christians do not mourn the death of their loved ones without hope. While the central point is clear enough, how does Paul's description of Jesus' return give hope in their mourning? I suggest that the answer lies in the background for Paul's imagery. Most commentators agree that there are common elements of apocalyptic imagery in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, such as the sound of the trumpet, the presence of the archangel, and the presence of clouds. However, Paul also uses imagery reflective of the visit of an important dignitary, especially a political leader like an emperor. Such a visit, an Adventist, had a set pattern that we see far back as the divine arrivals in the Homeric hymns. It was so common that the Adventist displayed a basic general pattern. The arrival of a ruler in a city was announced ahead of time. The citizens would decorate their city, and on the appointed day, a procession of citizens headed by their dignitaries would go out to a certain point outside the city walls where they would meet the ruler. It appears that in many cases, if not all, the point to which one would go was fixed. Those in the procession would carry flowers, olive, or palm branches, lights, and incense, and there could be signs of the various guilds and corporations of the town, and more important, the statues of the gods. Singing and acclamations are also regularly mentioned. The ruler had a splendid retinue of his own. Three parts of this description are relevant for our understanding. First, the term parousia in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, translated by the NRSV as coming, could serve as a technical term for the arrival of a, of a ruler or a deity, making it equivalent to the Latin term adventus. However, we must keep in mind that the Greek word parousia had a wide range of meanings. In fact, Paul's term, use of the term will begin a shift in meaning for Christian circles where it comes to stand exclusively for the eschatological return of Christ. Second, the meeting the apontesis of 417 has long been recognized as a technical term related to the Greco-Roman Adventus. Eric Peterson marshaled the evidence for the technical use of the apontesis uh, in an essay that still influences biblical scholars today. Further, he drew attention to the manuscript of 1 Thessalonians, where the term upontesis appears as a variant for apontesis in some manuscripts. He concluded that the scribal confusion was due to the two terms being synonymous for the formal meeting of an Adventist. In this sense, the apontesis is the place where the people go of the city go out to meet the sovereign. However, a concept missing from 1 Thessalonians 4 is the consensus, where the ruler's representatives and the city's citizens work together to determine where the initial meeting of the Adventist takes place. Instead, the appointed meeting between the Lord and the Thessalonian Christians and those who preceded them in death is in the air. Third, the following section in the timing of the parousia, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, connects the readiness of the Thessalonian Christians to the readiness necessary for an Adventist. To wit, some will expect the Adventists of the Lord on the appointed day, but others will not. For you yourselves, Paul says, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and there will be no escape. 
From the standpoint of the Adventists itself, preparation is an essential factor. Emperors would inform the city of their impending Adventists, and the city must have the foresight to prepare for it. Paul sees those who are not ready as indifferent and unprepared for what they should expect, the Adventists, the appointed day of the Lord. Thus, their feeling of peace and safety is a sense of security that since the sovereign's Adventist is sometime yet future, they are safe to risk the sovereign's wrath. The unpreparedness of those who say peace and safely directly contrasts with the Thessalonian Christians who are preparing for the Adventists and will not be surprised. Thus, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, and 5, but you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day, and we are not of the night or of darkness. Those who are drunk, asleep, uh, drunk or asleep, and note the change of reference for the metaphor of sleeping here, those who are not ready and thus indifferent for the impending Adventists will miss the trumpet announcing the Lord's imminent arrival to the place of meeting. In contrast, the Thessalonian Christians are ready, and since they are ready, Paul encourages them to continue their preparations in uh, 5.8. He says, we belong to the day. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Well, given the viability of, the, of seeing an imperial Adventist as part of the imagery in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 4, through 18, we turn to how this imagery helps us to understand the hope of 1 Thessalonians 4.13. For this, a closer look at the ceremony related to the Adventists gives us further guidance. Another aspect of the Adventist ceremony is the whole city coming out to meet the sovereign when he arrives. Honored or first positions go to those of proper rank, including those who played a prominent role in the preparation. For the Thessalonian Christians, the preparers include those who sleep, those who have died before the Adventists. So that the sleepers may participate in the Adventists, they are first resurrected. Paul says, for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We should not, however, understand the ones who have risen first here to have a higher status. Instead, first is a mark of temporality, the sleepers rise before the Adventists, and thus, this is the final step of their preparation. Once that happens, then, Paul says, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The arrival at the meeting place in the air happens together at the same time. There is no distinction in status as no one arrives first. And Paul has already introduced this concept of equal status in the passage we just read, where he says that we who are alive will by no means precede those who have died. There's yet more reason for confidence. Paul asserts that none who should go out will miss the assigned meeting place. After God raises, first raises the dead so that they can attend, he takes those who are raised, along with those already alive, to the meeting in the air. Interestingly, the Adventist does not continue past this point. Typically, after the meeting, the sovereign is escorted into the city. After greetings were exchanged, the citizens accompanied their ruler into the city where there could be further ceremonies of welcome, and in the case of emperors, there was often a meeting between the emperor and the local senate during which requests could be made and granted. And here, in a very real sense, an emperor could be the benefactor and savior of his subjects. 
This stay is not part of, first, of the description in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Instead, Paul aims to offer hope concerning those who have died. He ends with the permanence of the new condition, and so we will be with the Lord forever. What then arises from Paul's use of the Adventist ceremony to portray the parousia of Christ is the importance of the physical resurrection of those who die in Christ and, then, and are then raised as Christ is raised. Those in Christ who are alive need not mourn for the Christian dead as others mourn for theirs because of the certainty that those who are asleep will rise bodily at his appearing. They will be with their loved ones together at the same time when they meet the Lord. There is no uncertainty, no wishful thinking, no despair at the loss of a loved one. Jesus' resurrection ensures this. These indeed are encouraging words. Thank you, Dr. Milhouse. We'll have another Q&A after this final paper, so be writing down your questions. We'll have plenty of time. Um, first of all, I have a confession to make. Uh, I have never won the chili cook-off, so sorry for heckling Dr. Milhouse. Um, some of you are like, why does this guy keep talking about chili? Um, when I'm sad about that fact, though, I comfort myself with the fact that I've known Dr. Tim Gabrielson for eight years. First, we were fellow students at Marquette University in the graduate program there, and now as colleagues here. Uh, Dr. Gabrielson serves as another one of our faculty in biblical studies, and he's going to come up and present a paper called Before the Afterlife, Why the Resurrection Matters Today. Thanks, Dr. Gabrielson. We are obsessed with the chili cook-off, apparently, um, but I don't, if it didn't bother Roy, I wouldn't actually talk about it so much, Dr. Milhouse, I should say, um, but since I have this audience and um, have the opportunity, I will say four-time winner in six years, uh, so a lot of thanks to my wife uh, for that as well. Uh, but with that, let me uh, actually get to something important, um, and that is talking about the resurrection and why it matters. As the father of a blonde, curly-haired, energetic two-year-old, I both dread and anticipate the day my son begins asking the question, why? I dread this phase of development because he has already shown obsessive traits, which is no great surprise if you know his mother or me. There are many examples, <laughs> some people who know me are laughing right now. There are many examples I could offer of his budding obsessions, but his great love at the moment is air conditioners. Yes, air conditioners. The fans inside turning off and on, slowing down and speeding up, have been a source of unspeakable joy to him since sometime midsummer. Every day when I get home, his first words to me are not, I love you, daddy, or you're home, daddy, but go to campus, by which he means go to campus and look at the air conditioners. We'll spend an hour or more per day during the late afternoon moving from air conditioner to air conditioner, monitoring their status. His favorite spot is the courtyard outside Kelsey Hall, where there are five units. Um, there are actually some students at Sterling College who have a class at 6 p.m. in, in um, Kelsey Hall, and I like wave at them every day. I'm like, feeling so awkward. But anyway, there are these five units. He has given each its own name, green air conditioner, tall air conditioner, and so forth. When an air conditioner starts up, he squeals with delight, points, and yells, that one on! The dream is for all five units to run at the same time. <laughs> I say his dream, and I mean it literally, at least in part. On multiple occasions, I have woken up in the middle of the night to hear my son chant, that one on, that one on, that one on, that one on, that one on. And then he ends with, that would be so fun. 
cute, but I'd rather be sleeping at 3 a.m. So I believe my son's current obsess obsession justifies my fear that he will eventually batter me with an endless supply of why questions until I resort to the two great fallbacks of the Christian parent. Because I said so, and because God made it that way. At the same time, I also anticipate his interest in why. For why leads to 90% of all learning. It drives science and math, entrepreneurship and innovation, history and the humanities. It also prompts my topic this morning. At the end of Paul's long explanation of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he ends by writing these words. And I'll note, I use the NIV. Score some more points. <laughs> Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. At first pass, these words seem like a modest letdown after a glorious passage on the hope that we have for eternity. They sound like a little more than a paternal pat on the head. Run along now and be good little boys and girls. So I return to my question, why? Why did Paul conclude one of his most important chapters this way? I've just called this chapter glorious. You might not be familiar with it, so let me briefly overview it. What we call 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul, a famous early Christian, to his fellow Christians in the Greek city of Corinth in the mid-50s of the first century AD. Paul is apparently aware of some at Corinth who deny that the resurrection will take place. This is probably not a denial of the afterlife. Instead, it is likely a denial of the physical afterlife. In the last major topic addressed in his letter, Paul defends that the resurrection will take place and gives us hints of what it will be like. The chapter falls nicely into three parts. In verses 1 through 11, Paul reminds the Corinthians of the centrality of a belief in the resurrection. In what is probably the earliest Christian creed, Paul records, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to a series of people as proof of his resurrection. The belief that Jesus died and was raised on the third day was essential for Paul, as it is today. Despite this early creed, though, some in Corinth apparently had their doubts about, whether, about their own resurrection, perhaps speculating that Jesus' rising was a one-time-only miracle from God. Paul voices their question in verse 12. How can, some of you, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? He answers this in the second part of 1 Corinthians 15, namely verses 12 through 34. Paul draws out several consequences of denying that the resurrection that the dead are raised, not least that our faith would become useless and futile since we are still in our sins. If we are wrong about the resurrection, our motto should have been, as Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Or as we might say today, you only live once. According to Paul, it is no small matter to dispense with the resurrection. Nevertheless, Paul does not expect his audience to be convinced yet. He voices a second question, or really a pair of questions, that he anticipates they are asking, which gets to the heart of the matter. In verse 35, Paul writes, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It becomes clear that the Corinthians do not object to an afterlife in general, but rather to a specific view of the afterlife, that it will be embodied. 
the phrase that you find in any English Bible is the resurrection of the dead, but in Greek, it could equally sound like the rising of the corpses. So you know what the Corinthians are thinking. Zombies. Well, maybe not zombies in our exact way of thinking, stumbling about and hungry for brains, but not entirely unlike it either. For the human body, as we know it, reaches its peak around 20 years old. So all of you like high school, college students, you know, you're about the peak, I'm on the slow slide. But um, after that, it's this gradual slide toward weakness, atrophy, and incapacity. Extend that for eternity, we might suppose the Corinthians objecting, and who knows what a puddle of useless flesh we might become. No one would want our body in its current trajectory toward deterioration extended indefinitely. So the third section of 1 Corinthians 15, covering verses 35 through 57, Paul has to purge their limited imagination and fill it with a grander vision. Like a seed, our body will be placed in dirt when we die, but at the end of time, we will burst forth in a new kind of physical life. We inherit a body from Adam that is mortal and susceptible to decay, but we will receive one from Christ that is imperishable, glorious, powerful, and activated by the Spirit of God. Paul builds to a jubilant crescendo. Our mortal bodies will put on immortality. Death has been swallowed up and lost its sting, and God gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a powerful sweep of rhetoric, but then it seems to end in mildly disappointing collection of commands. Therefore, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15 has received comparatively little attention, but to the degree it has, it presents a minor puzzle to scholars. Precisely because it appears disconnected from its context, one explanation is to take the verse to be generic instructions closing the letter as a whole. But this conclusion does not begin until 16.5, so it would, be, it would be premature to sum up in 15.58. Further, verse 58 mirrors verses 1 and 2 of the same chapter. At the outset, Paul worried that the Corinthians' view that the afterlife would leave them unstable—sorry, um, let me try that again. Paul worried that the Corinthians' view of the afterlife would leave them unstable and render their faith vain. And at the end, in verse 58, he returns to both ideas. So you can see up here some of this happening in verses one and two, and then again the same terminology and ideas in verse 58. The echo is intentional. From start to finish, 1 Corinthians 15 is about our assured assurance of hope and the meaningfulness of our present lives. So 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is meant as the ending of this section, not the wider letter. A second explanation is that it promises an extrinsic reward for good behavior. My guess is that most of you have not used the word extrinsic or its antonym intrinsic around your friends recently, so an explanation might help. An intrinsic reward comes from the deed itself, pride at a job well done or satisfa satisfaction in the product of your labor. An extrinsic reward, by contrast, is more like a bargain. If you do this, I will give you that. Someone who makes a pie and eats a slice of it for dessert enjoys an intrinsic reward. The effort of baking produced the pie as its outcome. A son who cleans his room because his mother offers him a cookie does so for uh, for doing so, receives an extrinsic reward. There's no logical connection between the cookie and the room cleaning, but a trade is made so that mom and son can both get something they want. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 might establish an extrinsic reward system with God. We act uprightly in this life, and then God will give us eternal favors. 
Now, this is not to say that anyone is saved by being a good person. Christianity opposes that idea. We are saved by God's grace through accepting the forgiveness and new life offered in Jesus. Instead, an extrinsic reward in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 would depend on the idea accepted by some Christians that there are differing levels of reward for those who are saved. Our guest has already talked about how there might be differing levels of punishment as well. So good, do's, good deeds do not punch our ticket to eternity, so to speak. Rather, they allow us to accumulate prizes once we get there. This view need not be as crass as my analogy suggests, however. We all do things that we do not like for some other reason, and that other reason might be commendable. A father may work a job he finds dull or distasteful because it is the only viable means of supporting his family. Perhaps 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 58 presents an extrinsic reward. We are motivated to work hard in this life because we trust God to confer lavish gifts in the next. This is possible, but extrinsic rewards are hardly the ideal, and it would also imply that the chapter ends with a surprisingly self-seeking application. Thus, a third interpretation has been put forward, that Paul commends missionary or religious work. One thing that Christians can do is undoubted, that is undoubtedly of, of eternal value is proclaim the gospel. Our distinguished guest has earlier presented about the fate of the unevangelized, giving us hope that at least some of those who have never heard may share in the world to come. But better by far, of course, is to proclaim the message far and wide so that many people, as many people as possible, are able to respond in faith to a credible articulation of the good news. Or the sense might be expanded to religious work in general so that various forms of Christian service count, prayer, giving to the poor, mentoring younger believers, or leading the church choir. For the Christian, these activities are of immeasurable value. It is critical to declare the good news of salvation in Christ, and the life and ministry of the church require investments from each of us. At the same time, it is hard to affirm that these are the only valuable acts in life. To limit what is of lasting influence to missionary or religious work reinforces a dangerous secular, sacred secular divide. It renders most of our lives irrelevant to eternity, and would also follow that while pastors or missionaries may have significant everlasting impact the rest of us twiddle away at things that will not long survive us. For these reasons, it seems to me that many explanations of verse 58 make Paul's instructions either an afterthought or restrict their applications considerably. Either way, Paul's ultimate appeal would falter precisely where we desire the climax, like a soloist voice who crack, that cracks on the final note. Thus, I suggest a fourth option. There is an eternal impact of our everyday life. Any good work done for the Lord may leave its imprint on eternity, not only the preacher in the pulpit, but also the artist in his studio, the civil engineer in her workshop, or the busboy at his tables. Similarly, it may not be the big moments of our lives that matter, but the small things that we do between the big things, kindness we extend to a stranger we will never meet again, or driving peaceably on the roadway. To be sure, many of these moments seem unremarkable, even to ourselves, things we do and forget by the end of the day. Yet Christians believe in a God who delights in the ordinary, who became incarnate in a man who had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, and who took on the form of a servant. It would be in keeping with that God to draw the most mundane moments into the afterlife. I offer this explanation with some caution. It contains an element of speculation, though I hope intelligent speculation. The very reason verse 58 presents a puzzle is because Paul does not directly explain the relationship between his long reflection on the resurrection and the commands that end it. 
I admit to reading between the lines. But then again, I think we are all reading between the lines precisely because Paul did not connect the dots for us. And I would argue that this fourth explanation connects an important dot between 1 Corinthians 15, 58 and the rest of the chapter. I also see hints of the same idea elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 is centered on the resurrection of our present physical body in new glorious form. Many today imagine the afterlife as a non-material or airy souls dwelling on clouds, which is incidentally not far from what the Corinthians themselves thought. Even those who expect a bodily afterlife often picture the soul as the enduring element of the human person, with the first body cast aside and an entirely new body received later. But that is not what Paul says. It is not the soul that dies in weakness and mortality and is raised in power and immortality. It is the body. Our present bodies are enhanced, not replaced. Sitting in this room are dozens and dozens of eternal bodies. Paul knew as well as we do that human flesh decays in the grave. Yet he trusted that God could gather up all of our broken pieces and in some mysterious way, transform the bodies we currently have into undying, perfected ones. If God can do that with our bodies, why not with other aspects of the world? There would then be an intrinsic connection between the resurrection and the closing commands. Other books in the New Testament seem to share this view as well. We might consider Revelation. The final two chapters of the Bible provide a glimpse of the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. In, various human cultural, in it, various human cultural products are mentioned. It is the renewed city of Jerusalem. Its gates and foundation bear the name of 24 historical individuals. And perhaps most interestingly, 21-24 records that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Eternity will be populated by the best things this world has to offer. Similar hints occur in the resurrection appearances of Jesus. In the Gospels, after he is raised, Jesus' followers recognize him, but only tentatively. He is at first unfamiliar and then known. This is best illustrated by John 21. Jesus is having breakfast with his disciples, and John records, none of the disciples asked him, who are you? For they knew that it was the Lord. In this one remark is captured the strangeness of the resurrection appearances. Jesus, in his raised body, must not have looked precisely the same because no one harbors the question, who are you, unless there is some uncertainty. Yet the verse also affirms that they knew it was Jesus. He was the same, but different. He could still eat bread, but also walk through walls. The resurrected body has new properties that reverse expectations, but at the same time, it remains physical matter. Jesus ate old creation fish with his new creation body. At one point in my life, I remember being told that the only things that would survive uh, from this earth would be the Bible and the marks on Jesus' body. This was not at Denver Seminary, by the way. I cannot remember the source or even when this occurred, but it taught me that this world we live in is basically a danger and a waste of time, a ship that is sinking, or to change the analogy, a house that is about to burn. The only thing of value is saving others. This now seems to me to be a severely impoverished vision. To be sure, there will be many elements of discontinuity, and that is good news. God will defeat evil in all its forms. But there will be elements of continuity, this world to the next, and we may have a hard time imagining exactly which elements will remain. In Paul's analogy, the seed is planted and a tree springs forth. The plant looks nothing like the seed, and yet it comes from the seed. So also, I suggest, with our actions on earth, maybe there will be football in the new creation. Perhaps Shakespeare will be performed forever. Maybe, to my son's delight, 
there will even be air conditioners. Though I hear the weather's perfect in paradise. I don't know. I do know that Paul's ending in 1 Corinthians 15, 58 is not an anticlimax. Because of the resurrection, Paul's instructions are charged with meaning. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What you do now is not empty and fleeting. Do good work for God wherever you are and whatever your vocation, and you may leave fingerprints on eternity. Thank you. Be welcoming back up all of our speakers for the Q&A. If you have questions, uh, you can come on back up front and line up. Uh, looks like the mics are gone, but if we need to, you can yell those. Okay, so Chaplain Paul will be bringing those. And one of the microphones is caught in a chair, so here we go. Thanks, Tim. I'll sit down. Nobody else wants to. <laughs> All right, so while you're mustering up the courage to come ask that deep question about the Bible you've always had, um, I'll start with one. Um, I'm assuming only one person in the room has helped to translate the Bible, unless some of you have a really you know, secret hobby I'm unaware of. Uh, so Dr. Blomberg, can you tell us what does it look like behind the scenes to be involved in a Bible translation committee? We gather for a minimum of one week each year um, for about 45 hours in different locations. And there are 15 committee members who have been tasked with reading through ahead of time a few hundred pages of proposals. We usually have about a two to three year backlog of proposals we're working through. Uh, anybody in the world who has got a brilliant idea uh, or a semi-intelligent idea um, for an improvement uh, is welcome to contact anyone on the committee. Uh, if we think it is worthy and can get one other person on the committee to agree, it can get on the list. Uh, we bring our own proposals as well. and. Uh, then we simply work through them in a first come, first receive order. Um, some of them can be dealt with quite quickly. Some of them have long periods of discussion. And our chair, Doug Moo, at some point says it's time to vote. And uh, for any change to be introduced in the existing NIV, there has to be a three-quarters majority of votes. And if a proposal gets that, it's recorded in a database that uh, someday, whenever the publishers decide it's time for the next edition, uh, will get published in the next edition. Great, thank you. Um, I'll just keep asking questions until some of you come up, so. Okay, raise your hand. Oh, there we go. It's hiding from me in the corner, Dr. Hank. Thank you very much, Henry Lederley. Um, Dr. Milhouse, I missed one word in your discussion. You spoke about Adventus and Parousia, but never about Raptus. Um, how do you see the connection between what you related when we go out to meet the sovereign to what Americans call the rapture? Um, N.T. Wright, in one of his popular books, says that 
He doesn't believe in the rapture. He believes what is called the rapture is really this going out to meet the sovereign. So uh, I'd like to just hear your comment on that. And while I give you a minute to think about that, I want to say I have a grandchild who also has blonde hair and who also has this fascination with mechanical things. I wonder if something is catching. He is delighted about Roombas. Uh, those, those little things that get the stuff off the carpet clean. He, every time he goes to a shop, he wants to survey the Roombas. He uh, dreams of a Roomba, but the Roomba costs $900, so that's not going anywhere. Um, but I just am fascinated that at this time, suddenly kids think about these things instead of wanting to be policemen or, or cowboys or something more exciting. Thank you. Who is not fascinated by Roombas, though, <laughs> Dr. Hank? <laughs> well, Dr. Hank, I, get, uh, I touched on that very briefly and just kind of uh, went by trying to avoid being over controversial. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I do see that aspect of it as, as part of God ensuring that those who are supposed to be at the meeting place will be there so that they are snatched there. And I didn't, when, when I presented it, I didn't say it that strongly, but that's, that's kind of the idea that, that I meant, that here's the meeting place, here is the time, the trumpet has sounded, and God's going to make sure everybody gets there. And so that's where, where I see that aspect of, of that imagery coming in. So instead of them needing to, uh, um, this is going to sound like I'm being contradictory, but I, I'm not, but, uh, or at least in my mind I'm not. Uh, it, you know, they are to keep watch and be ready, but at the same time, when Jesus arrives to the air, it's not going to be up to them to get there. He's going to get them there. Thanks, Dr. Milhouse. Another hand up. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, I had a question. I was curious about it, and then I'm glad that um, uh, Glenn asked the question about the, the New Testament translation, or the, the uh, NIV translations. You said that there was uh, three quarters that had to, um, yeah, to be the approval. Let's say that you are one of the, the quarter or less than that, the 20% that say, I'm not quite in agreement with that. How do you rectify then your own personal views as you start to read the NIV and go, there's something that I would philosophically disagree with, um, knowing yourself, like if I'm reading the NIV, I, I don't necessarily look and go, oh, I, I disagree with this, I would change it if I was on your committee, but you now know that, um, you know the process, and so you know the things that you would look at and go, oh yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't on board with that, but now it's part of the, the canon that is the most important document to me. How do, how do you personally rectify um, those situations that you wouldn't have agreed with? Life is full of such experiences. <laughs> how do you participate actively and wholeheartedly in a church when even the best of preachers do not say something all the time? that you agree 100% with? Um, how do you 
teach at an institution, just hypothetically, where not every decision that is made that comes out of faculty meeting is what you voted for. Um, obviously, everyone has a threshold. If something catastrophic were to happen and the NIV were to start making decisions that made it resemble more the Jehovah's Witnesses New World Translation, I would probably need to dissociate myself with it. But um, we're not talking about things that uh, affect orthodoxy or major issues of doctrine and behavior. We're talking about what's the best way to render ambiguous words and phrases um, or to recognize that language changes over time. Um, I had a bit of a revelation not too many years ago when I realized that something my peers and I were often called when we were kids, you impudent little kid, that millennials and Gen Z often have never even heard of the word. Um, it happens to be how the ESV translates uh, Luke uh, uh, 11, the, the word that is sometimes boldness or persistence. Uh, the NIV says shameless audacity, the man who comes asking for a friend who's come to his home at midnight and he has no food to offer him. Uh, it's a word that appears only once in the Greek Bible, an idea, and it defies a perfect English translation. Um, and so over time, you have to say, well, let's, let's try something different that seems to work in the 2020s. Um, and those are the, the, the types of people that have been vetted. That's interesting. In order to be on the NIV committee, uh, you have to sit in and fully participate for a year's session and you're evaluating whether you want to commit to being on it, and they're evaluating if they want you to be on it. And yes, you need the linguistic expertise, but people who are combative, people who love to be confrontational or controversial, even though they're brilliant scholars, will never be invited because you have to have a cooperative spirit that has the ability to say, shoot, I lost three votes this afternoon, all of which I felt kind of strongly on. Now let's go out and have a nice meal together and be friends. <laughs> We've got another question from, from Wes. Uh, that's loud. <laughs> uh, Dr. Blomberg, in your presentation, you talked about how there are different levels of suffering in hell, kind of depending on intentionality or lack thereof. If there are different levels of suffering, is that suffering still eternal? It seems to be. Um, and a student who um, had some background in mathematics once suggested to me, which I probably should have thought of because I had some background in a previous life once too, um, that uh, you can have different kinds of infinite sets, but 
they're all infinite, so I can have uh, the set of all whole numbers um, counting out to infinity, but I can also have the set of every tenth number going out to infinity, and I can have the set of every hundredth number. And I remember going around in a tizzy with my college professors about that, saying, no, the, the one that's only every one hundredth number has to be a hundred times smaller than the one that's every whole number. And set theorists say, no, since you're going out to infinity, they're all, they're all the same size, which is infinite. Um, and so this student said, you know, maybe the ones who suffer less, the, the metaphor that's used is with a blow. Um, okay, so one person gets punished with a blow every hundred days, um, somebody else every day. Um, again, that's metaphorical, but at least it's a model of how you can have uh, something that's infinite and, infinite and yet have considerable gradations. Okay, we have uh, another question over here. Dawson? Uh, yeah, so my name is Dawson. Uh, this is a question for Dr. Blomborg or, and or Gabrielson. So as Dr. Gabrielson implied, human bodies are perishable. So if believers must be raised and changed to become imperishable, must unbelievers be changed as well so that they too may become imperishable in hell? I'm sure Tim can handle that. <laughs> I should have been the first to respond. I was, I was trying to be deferential and get away. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it's, so uh, I have a, a, a student who's, who's writing a thesis for me and, um, and she's trying to campaign to get me to, to believe in conditionalism, um, the idea that, that we, uh, those who are, are, don't believe, um, simply cease to exist after the final judgment and, and so forth. And she's intelligent and, and has a lot of really good ideas and everything. Um, at this point, I still think, though, that I look at places like the 12th chapter of Daniel, for example, and it talks about, um, it, it says, you know, specifically, both the righteous and the unrighteous are raised on that day, um, the one to go to everlasting punishment and the other to everlasting life. Um, and so... I think that that would presumably be the implication that, that all um, are raised with physical bodies and some enjoy being with God, which is the greatest delight of all and the only thing that really matters in the end, and others are, are excluded from that. But um, Daniel would seem to imply at least that they still have uh, physical bodies. That's the verse I was turning to, so I knew you could do it. I was well trained. I think we have time maybe for one more question. Is oh, that was fast. Um, kind of continuing on the idea of the physical body, uh, Dr. Gableson, you talked about how uh, you believe that Christians will have a perfected human body in heaven, and um, I've just I've, like I found some verses that seem to, uh, and also that Jesus, I. Did you imply that Jesus does have a physical body right now? Very much, yes. Well, passages like when um, Paul saw Paul saw who later became Paul saw Jesus on the road, he wasn't physical. He was a great light. Also in Revelation, when John saw him in the beginning, he describes him with very unhuman characteristics, um, bright light, um, 
things tattooed on him, very non-human attributes. And also in, sorry, just a second. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about how um, Christians will have spiritual bodies in heaven, not physical. Yeah, great. And, and I very much appreciate um, the reference to so many passages as you investigate this. Um, so very much, the f it, I, I, I do believe very much that it's a physical resurrection. And I, I do think that the Corinthians are denying that specific aspect that they believe in an afterlife, but not a physical afterlife. And that's what Paul is trying to connect or correct. So I'm very much on the team physical eternity. Um, but with that, it doesn't mean that it, I mean, and, and again, this is Paul's analogy, we are, we are put in the ground like a seed and a plant that looks nothing like a seed comes up from that, but there is still continuity. So I don't think that any objection of uh, Jesus seems to be glowing at times and he's in the air and all those sorts of things doesn't mean he couldn't be physical. Um, even if he doesn't look like normal humans. And I even think of, you know, before his, his death, there is one very key place where, by all accounts, he's still physical and yet um, very much changed, and that's the transfiguration, right? I mean, so that, that is not Jesus, like, disappearing from his physical body and being replaced with um, a non-physical body and starting to glow. It is his physical body. It's as if God, for a moment, removes the fallen, you know, maybe even a preview of the resurrected state, um, it's still physical, but now it's like glowing physical, you know, so it's, it's transfigured into the sort of bodies that we will have in eternity. Um, so I think, yeah, very much the, phys the final physicality is much better than the physicality, you know, maybe we can fly and, you know, all these sorts of wonderful things, I don't know, but somehow it's a better physicality, but it's still something you can touch and eat fish and eat Jesus still has the scars and everything. Um, I think I've hit most of your passages, but one of your questions was about, it's a, you know, it says spiritual, in First uh, Corinthians 15, and, and I'm trying to forget, or I'm trying to remember which different translations say it, but I think some of them are really unhelpful in how they, they translate two Greek terms. Um, but literally what's happening here is Paul is contrasting the soul-inspired body versus the spirit-inspired body. Mm -hmm. But this is not their materiality. It is not like what substance they're made of, but what's inspiring it, what's, what's animating it. And so right now we're being animated by simple souls but in the future, we will be animated by the Spirit of God. And so when it talks about a spirit bo spiritual body, how we hear that is non-physical. But what Paul means is a body that is, um, mm -hmm. that is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And so a spiritual body, and, I, and I'm trying to remember how the, NIV, the new NIV does it, but I think the new NIV even might say something like, I'm sitting next to a committee member, so, um, but I'm trying to remember some of the translations um, try to correct this impression, but, but talk about um, like a, a spirit inspired, but very much, I, and I don't think there's actually, no, there's some debate on this, but there's not a lot of debate that what Paul means is not that we are, our material becomes spirit, but instead that the Holy Spirit is the one um, empowering the physical body that we will have. Yeah, it still says natural and spiritual, but Ditto. Amen. Exactly. Well, I think for time's sake, unfortunately, we're out of time for questions. If you are in the theology and ministry department, you still have an opportunity. Um, so our, our faculty and our students majoring and minoring, uh, maybe if you want to congregate up front, then you can head over for a pizza lunch with uh, the presenters. Um, if you're in the honors program, don't forget you can sign in in the back in order to get credit. Uh, we also still have two high schools hanging in there. So Elyria Christian School, where are you at? 
Hey. Lots of hands, a little bit of energy and school spirit. Appreciate that. Um, You are stuck with me. I'm going to be your tour guide to make sure that you find your way to the cafeteria where you get a free lunch instead of finding your way into a nice Calc 3 class or something. Uh, Berean Academy, where are you? Okay, so Chaplain Paul Brandis is going to be your guide, hopefully as reliable as I am. Uh, We'll get you to your meal and then back home. Thank you, everyone, for coming and attending. And one last round of applause for our presenters. (laughs) 